I'm going to ask you to say amen to this statement if you believe it and you agree with it. There's nothing that our God can't do. So if I tell you that God can preserve you and protect you all the way until eternity and through eternity, you would have to be people who would agree with that because you believe there's nothing that our God can't do. When I think of the word preserved, um, my mind tends to go to the canned peaches that my wife put up in our pantry or our applesauce. My mind thinks of preserves or a rustic cabin on the side of a river up in northern Michigan, deep in the woods, where it would preserve your sanity to be there. My mind goes to preserved on a lot of issues, but when it goes to the preserved that God's talking about in His Word, that's an entirely different type of preserving. Because what we think of as preserved is time-limited. There is a point when the peaches and the applesauce will not be edible anymore, and you wouldn't want them even though we call them preserved. And there's a time when a cabin would fade away and it would rot. So preserved for us in Scripture means something entirely different. I thought it important to talk with you about the preservation of your soul this morning from this standpoint. Having spent the last four weeks in the parables and looking at the second coming and the tribulation and the last days of this planet and how horrible things would be in the last days, it's really important to know where you stand with God personally am I really saved? And so I call this message preserved from that standpoint, and it matches a little brochure that's in the seats around you this morning, the things that you can take with you. You may not personally need it, but I bet you know somebody that does. And so I'm going to encourage you to take it with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Hebrews and to also the book of Romans in just a minute. I'm going to link Hebrews and Romans together, specifically Hebrews 10 and Romans 8. I felt it really important as we talked about the last day's things to have an an anchor, and there is no greater anchor than God's Word. So let me take you to an anchor, I think something that will be a peace of mind for your soul. Let me show you Hebrews 10, 11. You'll see this on the screen. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, verse 12, he is Jesus in this case, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. I especially need to hear that and be reminded of that because that verse is telling me of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to the thought of him sitting down in just a few minutes, but just know this, every priest that ever went into the temple in the ancient complex, they had to stand all the time. They had to stand because their work was never completed. They couldn't take a seat. We'll come back to that thought in just a minute, but I need to be reminded of that because it tells me of the finished work of Jesus and because of the emotions that you and I are so prone to wondering, am I I really saved? The writer of Hebrews understood that we had those emotions. God moved the writer of Hebrews to write the things that he does because of this tendency that we have to go up and down, to have roller coaster, both in our behavior and in our emotions, but also in our understanding, in our comprehension. Let me show you another verse that goes along with that. If you back up eight chapters to Hebrews chapter 2, you find the writer of Hebrews saying this, therefore, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. 
So the writer in Hebrews in chapter 1 has been doing this. He's been talking about the greatness of Jesus. If you haven't read Hebrews before, I encourage you to do that. He's laying a casework for how great Jesus is, His surpassing greatness beyond anything that mankind has ever known. And as he lays the case in chapter 1, he comes to this point in chapter 2 and he says, we don't want to be drifting away from this reality. We want to pay much closer attention to it. And so he's saying, since the Son is so supremely great, and because He will return one day in blazing glory and clouds of heaven, we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away, which leads to this question. Do you know someone in your life who has drifted away? Maybe in your own social circle or in your family, who seemingly started out as though they were running the course well. Maybe they appeared to actually be a Christ follower and then it appears that they drifted away. Or maybe you wonder that about yourself. You wonder if you're where you're supposed to be. Are you managing and maintaining? Do you wonder that about yourself? Let's look at this word drift for just a minute. It's a Greek word in your notes this morning. You'll see it on the screen. If you didn't download the notes yet, this would be a great time to do that, both at home and here in person. If you want a hard copy of the notes, they're back there by the pillar. You can go back there and grab one. Don't hesitate to get up during the service to do that. Let's look at this word drift, parareo. This particular word is used of the sailing industry to drift away from, to slip past something. Here's where it's used from. In the shipping industry in the ancient days, when a sailor would set his course and mark out according to the charts and the winds and the tides, he would know exactly the harbor that he was headed for. And those sailors, as they made their way towards that dock, they would continue to course correct along the way. They'd have to crab into the wind. They'd have to adjust for the time that they arrived there and for the tides. But occasionally, sailors lost attention, and they didn't pay as much attention as they should. And that word pereo is talking about someone who drifted right on past the dock. They stopped paying attention. They stopped course correcting. They stopped going towards the dock. And soon, their ship moved right on by, and they didn't get to the goal that they were going toward. The writer of Hebrews is using this very graphic image for a really intentional reason. Now, he's not talking about an ignorant sailor. He's not talking about somebody that's uninformed or stupid. He's talking about somebody who's careless. Here's how it relates to Scripture. Most people do not deliberately set out to drift on past God. Most people do not deliberately in a moment say, I'm just going to turn my back on him. Most don't do that. Rather, what happens is we slowly, imperceptibly, slowly drift right on past the harbor, and it happens through a course of making bad decisions. Day, week, month, year, year after year, little decisions adding up to big decisions and finding ourselves completely slipping on past. I want you to notice as we look at Romans now, as we drift over into that, that it's not God's Word that drifts, but rather it's negligent humans. The writer of Hebrews pointed out that God's not the one changing. It's not God who moves position. Jesus never drifts. Jesus never changes. 
Scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I would add to that, God's word never changes. It's the same today, tomorrow, yesterday. It's always the same. All that to set up the truth of what we're going to see in Romans 8 now. I link Romans with Hebrews, and let's look at what this amazing statement that Paul made in Romans chapter 8. He starts out in verse 1 by saying this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just makes you want to say amen, doesn't it? More than, more than just Jerry saying amen. We, we, we want to say it because we go like, yeah, that's so powerful. And a great day on communion day to want to be reminded that there's no condemnation if you're in Jesus. And we need to be reminded of this. There's a reason, if you haven't read Romans before, why people love Romans chapter 8. If you're new to church, this is really important to you. Verse 1 is addressing a really ancient issue. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, saying that there's no condemnation in Jesus, if you're in Jesus Christ, the ancient problem is this. How do people who are covered in sin actually stand before a holy God? How is that possible? What do we have to do to be able to stand before Him one day? And here's how this would help you if you're new to church. Every world religion is a response to that question. You name the religion around the world, and it's a response to this question. How do I get to God? I've got sin. What do I do? How do I actually stand before God? With the exception of biblical Christianity, all other world religions focus on what mankind can do and tries to do to be acceptable. But with biblical Christianity, God actually gives the definitive answer. Romans 8.1. Look with me on the screen again. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Bible is very clear. Justification doesn't take place because humans finally figured out a way to beat sin. After all the millennial generations that have gone before us, we finally figured it out. And that's not true. We cannot overcome it. We're not capable of it. We all have sin, according to Scripture. We've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And so, therefore, we fall short of being able to be with God. We can't make ourselves good enough. Like, how good do you have to be to stand before a holy God? Well, perfect. But the reality is, through Jesus, we're made overcomers. The Bible actually calls you an interesting term, hooper nekao. If you haven't been around New Hope very long, you probably are not familiar with this term. The sports industry uses the term Nike uses it a lot. A clothing line adopted the term, the Greek word, nikao, and brought it in and, and labeled their tennis shoes and their shirts, Nike. Well, Nike, nikao, actually means overcomer. Hooper nikao means super overcomer. So if you're a hooper nikao, and that's what the Bible calls you, you're a super overcomer, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you. And so if you're in Jesus, you can't overcome it on your own, but through Jesus, you can overcome sin. This is really especially important for you to hear if you're hearing in your head the voices of accusation. 
And the voices of accusation usually come from three sources. It comes from Satan, it comes from your social circle, and it comes from yourself. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes, but those are the three sources that usually accuse us. And you can say this morning, because just of what you've heard in the first seven, eight minutes here, I'm not condemned. If I'm in Jesus, I am not condemned. And here's where Paul goes, and we're going to go all the way to the end of Romans chapter 8, not by covering the whole chapter, but just skipping forward into what he uses as the symphony. I'll call it a symphony of security. Here's his crescendo. It says this in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather was ra- who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. And Paul just keeps mounting ever higher and higher and higher and higher. If you love music, you identify with what's going on here. If Romans is Paul's magnus opus, the, the time you get to Romans chapter 8, It's the crescendo of the magnificent symphony, and he just builds and he stacks on top of it, and that's why people love Romans chapter 8. Go to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? When he's asking who can be against us, he doesn't mean that you're never going to face an adversary. It doesn't mean there's no opponents. What it means is this, if God's on your side, if God's for you, it makes no difference who's against you because you've got the big guy. You've got the one on your side who can defeat anyone else. Here's what I want you to know, especially if you're new to Christ. After coming to faith, after coming to Jesus for new life, many people still have doubts. If you're new to Christ, maybe you've been walking with Christ for only a few years, Chances are pretty good that you have doubts and you think you're the only one. I assure you, you're in an auditorium filled with individuals who wonder and have doubts. Everybody has doubts because we're humans and we have human-based emotions. So to give us assurance, God answers a really hard question. Is a true believer completely saved or is there more to do? And Romans calls out across the ages, echoing from 2,000 years ago, this statement in verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? And this particular word, if, in the Greek language, it's translating something. It's translating a fulfilled condition. It might be better to state it here as because God is for us. It's not a mere possibility. He's not asking you the question as though it's potentially not going to work out. It's a fulfilled condition. Here's his point. The obvious point is this. If anyone could take your salvation, they'd have to be greater than God. And no one is. Look with me on the screen at this. Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Isaiah is saying, go outside tonight. It's going to be a clear night. There's going to be a lot of stars out there. And just cast your eyes on the open, dark blanket of the sky. And look at all those pinpoints of light. Your God not only built them, he named them, and he holds them. 
Scripture's declaring he's the most powerful being. If you're held by a God like that, no one can vanquish you. So if we keep it in context, let's ask this question. Can others rob us of our salvation? No. Can others rob us of the joy of our salvation? Kind of. Kind of do. Others can try to do that. Some will, through the course of your life, try to make you think that you're not saved. And if you haven't run into that yet, you will over the course of your lifetime. Someone will suggest to you somewhere along the line that you can't claim heaven unless, and then they usually fill in the blank with a long list of things that they've piled up. Those would be legalists, individuals who have a certain set of rules, and they're like spiritual bullies, and they existed in the time of Paul. The, the false teachers that came around the church at that period of time tried to say, yep, Jesus is great, but you've got to keep this list of rules or you're not in. And Paul called them out radically for being false teachers, and false teachers can bring a lot of stress to a believer, and they can try and take your joy, and equally, they will confuse non-believers. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you notice the argument is from the greater to the lesser? If when you were lost in sin, God did the greater thing by giving up his son for you, if he did that, the greater, why would he not do the lesser? Track it this way. See if you agree with this statement. There is no way, no way we can possibly restore ourselves to God through our own efforts. Would you agree with that? So if that's true, and there's no way on earth that we could possibly restore ourselves to God, then that would require the action of God to bring us in. And rather than let us perish, God the Father delivered up God the Son to death. And that's why verse 32 says, he delivered him up. God, he delivered him up, Jesus, for us all. God gave up God. We're talking about the Father's participation. That's what Paul is summing up here. All the way back in 1860, Octavius Winslow, one of those old dead theologians that I love to read, he said it this way. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. So these things are telling me that if anyone does not receive salvation, it's not because of a lack of mercy on God's part. He's not willing that any would perish. And there is such capacity in Jesus that his death provides forgiveness for all the inhabitants of all the earth if they would only receive it. It's that effective. The thing that he did for us is that effective. It's available for everyone. Another dead theologian back in 1833, Charles Simeon, he said this, all are not alike benefited by this gift, but it was designed alike for all. Not everybody is going to take it. But it was built for everybody because God's not willing that any would perish. Verse 32, it says, He freely gives us all things. Now, if to you, freely gives us all things means a new Mercedes, you need to adjust your thinking. Okay? I'm going to say to you, you're actually thinking too small. 
Because the Bible doesn't equate freely giving us all things with material things. That's where our minds, our minds go. We're trapped in time. We tend to think material. But in God's economy, things are not measured in silver and gold. Rather, it's measured by your eternal soul. What's that worth? Mark 8 says this, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? New Hope, you could own the parking garage filled with 1,000 brand new Mercedes, and it would not equate to the value of your soul. So he's asking the question, what good does it do to you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? That's how God measures things. So how do I understand freely give? Well, freely give in the English language is just one word in the Greek language. That one's in your notes also. You see it on the screen. It means to impart something through grace, to deliver something through grace. Now, when you look at the definition of it, you understand it as you read it, but here's the picture behind it. God is gracious in His giving, and He's gracious in His forgiving. It's a both and. He freely gives and He freely forgives. Let me support this from Scripture, what I'm telling you. 1 John 1.9. Perhaps you've never read 1 John 1.9 before in this particular way. Look at what's being stated here. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a both and. He's freely giving and He's freely forgiving. He will cleanse you and forgive you. Forgive everything you've ever done from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Whatever sin you committed this week, yesterday, three months ago, three months in the future. That's how effective the work of Jesus is. That's what freely gives means. So we find He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And in place of our unrighteousness, He freely gives us righteousness. This is what causes most people, even mature believers, to draw a second breath. That truth that you've just heard, this moment of time that's taken us this much time to get to here makes this truth a reality. God's unlimited forgiveness makes it impossible for a true believer to sin themselves out of God's grace. You understand what that means? You can't out-sin God. And so individuals think, well, I just really screwed up. Well, maybe that's true. But the Bible says you can't out-sin God if you're a true believer. Can that be abused? Absolutely. Paul's argument was, should we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid. Is the rationale that I can go out and do whatever I want and I've got my ticket punched. I can go live however I want. Well, that would not be a person who really understands what Jesus did on the cross. That's not true faith. A person who's really in Christ is going to be pursuing Christ-likeness. But what he's saying is when you sin, you can't out-sin God so regardless this morning of what you think that you've done to burn the bridge, God's telling you this, if you belong to me in Jesus Christ, I've got you, and I've got you for eternity, and you cannot out-sin me. 
That's a reality that causes us to draw an extra breath, but say, yeah, that's the truth of Scripture. So Paul's point is this. How can it be that the God who shed his blood for you would then toss out the very one whom he died for? Would God do less for believers after we're saved than what he did for us before we're saved? Because the Father loved us so much, even while we were lost in sin, the truth of Scripture says that Jesus, even though he knew no sin, became sin for us. Look with me at this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin. That can't be said of you and I. It can be said of Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it's an issue of the cross, and we could stop right now, and we could lift up the communion cup and say, thank you, God. This could be the moment where we just celebrate communion. But I know, and it's a reality, that most of us have a feelings issue. And we ask ourselves the question, what if I don't feel saved? What do I do then? The reality is you have to base your faith in God's Word because God's Word never drifts. It never changes. It's always the same. So we finish it out this way. Paul asked this question, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And I told you earlier, there's three accusing entities in your life. There's Satan, there's your social circle, and there's yourself. And all three of those entities, all three of those S's will bring accusations against you. To bring a charge against someone, this word that's being used here is a legal term. It's talking about bringing a charge in a court of law. And it's being used in the future tense. He's saying, who will, who will in the future bring a charge against God's elect? Well, Satan, for sure. He's pointing to the final judgment here. He's finding, pointing to the time when someone is going to stand before the throne of God's judgment, and they will be accused. And Paul's asking the question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, he's not denying that you're going to face adversaries. You will face adversaries. He means that no accusation will stand. So the world, your social circle, brings charges against you. People call into question whether or not you're a real believer. Satan brings charges against us. We're told he's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who brings accusations. But Paul says... But God is the one who justifies. God is the one who makes you whiter than snow. It's not that the accusations made against you are untrue. That I'm not perfect yet is painfully obvious to me. Don't look at me that way. You're the same way, right? We know. We know ourselves. It's incredibly obvious to us. We're not perfect yet. He's going to make us that way. But even when the accusations are true, it's not grounds for separation because all of your sin, past, present, future, he died for all of those. They've been removed by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, here's where the big problem comes in. You noticed I went after Satan and I went after your social circle, but I didn't go after yourself. 
And the greatest accusations that you and I face is from ourselves. We know ourselves so well, we accuse ourselves all the time. Do you forgive yourself? Are you your own greatest accuser? Our heart condemns us, and it condemns us multiple times. And God knows that about us. So if you've not ever taken the habit to write down a Bible verse before that you might want to remember, I would really encourage you, especially if you have your Bible open, maybe go to the back of your Bible and just write this one down. 1 John 3, 19. Look with me on the screen at this. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart. And He knows all things. He knows everything there is to know about you. And He's greater than your heart, even though your heart condemns you. See, I'm, I'm working backwards for that verse. He knows everything there is to know about you. God is greater than all those things, even when your heart condemns you. 1 John 3, 19. That's a great one to remind yourself of. So then Paul logically asks this question, well, who is it? Who is the one who condemns, verse 34? Well, sometimes it's Satan, sometimes it's your social circle, and sometimes it's yourself. So he retorts with this, Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was saved, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And in your notes this morning, this is why I encourage you to pick the notes up, there's four realities that you need to take away from this verse this morning that are in your notes. You're going to see them up on the screen that remind you and remind yourself over and over again of these realities, biblical realities. The first one is this, Jesus died for your sin. You didn't die for your sin. Jesus died for your sin. He took the full penalty. My condemnation was transferred to Him. I deserved it. But because of Jesus, forever I am free. Sometimes it feels really good just to say that. How about if you say, I am free on three. One, two, three. I am free. That's a great declaration. And you need to remind yourself of that. Here's the second one. Jesus was raised from the dead. Because he conquered death, the grave could not hold him. And as a result, he can give eternal life to everyone who believes in him. Here's the third one. And this is where we go all the way back to the beginning. 180 degrees backwards. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And the posture of sitting is representing the finished work of Jesus. And here's how you can apply this. And I think a word picture will help you remember this. In the ancient temple complex, I said earlier, there were no chairs. The high priest and the working priest never got to sit down. And so the argument of the writer of Hebrews was, they make sacrifices all day long with sacrifices that can't take away sin. All it can do is cover over the sin temporarily, but it can't remove it. And so they work all the time, and the altar fire was always burning, and smoke was always going up because the sacrifice was never done. But do you remember what the writer of Hebrews went on to say? But because Jesus made one sacrifice for all time, taking away all sin, he sits down at the right hand of God because it's the finished work of Jesus. 
That's why he could cry out on the cross, it's finished. He'd done everything necessary to eliminate your sin and take it away. And here's the fourth one. Jesus intercedes for you. And he makes intercession for you without interruption until every single believer crosses over into heaven's shore. He continues to do that because he lives to do that. In other words, he loves to make intercession for you. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Church, if you grasp what Jesus did for you on the cross and you're a true believer, you realize you are safe for eternity. And on that great day, when he stands as judge of all the earth, I'm here this morning to ask you this question. I ask you, if he is for you, how can you possibly be condemned? Because God has you. Which goes to this question, what if I don't feel saved? And I would quickly respond to you with this. The Bible has nothing to say about feeling saved. And the reason God doesn't say anything about that is because he knows your feelings will betray you. We're humans. We're given to emotions. We feel good one moment and not so good the next moment. And we go through circumstances and we begin to wonder whether or not God really has our back. So Paul deals with this feeling issue head on as he closes out the statement. Verse 35, who, or more accurately, what will separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to list the what's. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? That's a rhetorical question. But it's a valid rhetorical question. Paul has a good reason to ask that. All those circumstances that he just listed there, they trigger emotions. And they cause us to wonder. It's a feelings-based question, and the questions trigger these thoughts. Is it possible that if events have gone horribly wrong in my life, does that mean that God doesn't have me any longer? Is God ticked at me? If things have failed so severely, what does that mean for me? And if we're going to be really honest, these kind of nasty, hostile, dangerous circumstances can have a really negative influence on us. And each of those hard circumstances leave us open to emotional trauma. And if you don't think so, just go read the book of Job sometime in the Old Testament. And wide open, emotional trauma going on off the charts. And when you're going through it, sometimes it doesn't feel like God has your back. And God says, that's exactly why you can't trust your feelings. You have to trust the truth of his word. The God who will never lie to you, who will never betray you, the God who is always true to his word has made a promise. And so Paul asked the question in Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? In context, the love of Christ represents salvation. Why do I point that out? Because it's not saying my love for Christ will never change. It's saying Christ's love for me will never change. His love. Read it again. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Not Mark's love of Christ, but Christ's love for Mark. 
To say that I will never be separated from my love of Christ, there's no great confidence in that because I know myself too well. I know the feelings, the emotions. You have the exact same thing. We're high one minute, low the next. We feel great when we come into worship and we sing, but come 6 o'clock this afternoon, may not feel so great. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? It's an amazing assurance when the creator of the universe says, his love for me will never fade. I will never leave you. Remember that one? That's also Hebrews. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews 13, 5. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You know what that means for you, church? It means it's not dependent upon your capacity to sustain it. It's dependent on his capacity. If you believe, we're told specifically, if you believe, persevere to the end, you will be saved. Christians have the confidence to face that day of judgment because we know the love of Christ will not let you go. And so that's why Paul concludes his symphony this way. Verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, church. What a beautiful, stunning summary. Do you notice the first thing on his list? We're not going to go through the entire list, but do you notice the first thing? The first thing he said is death. It's the thing that we all face. And he starts out with death by saying that. Even that. And especially that. It can't separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to list life with all its temptations, with all its dangers, with all its trials, things present, things to come, everything that you're experiencing right now whether you're at the peak of your health or laying in a hospital bed watching the service virtually. All those things included, everything we are experiencing and yet will experience, powers from on high and powers from below. I'm sure that when Paul wrote this to the Roman church that was filled with Christians, they didn't understand how quickly they would need to be reminded of this. Because not long after Paul wrote these things, Nero comes into power. And if there was ever a godless government on the face of this earth, it was encapsulated in Nero. And before long, they would be cast into the amphitheater where the gladiators would rip them apart and the lions would shred them and their blood would soak the sand of the theater. And Nero would use Christians for nightlights at his garden parties. When you come to that place in your life where you wonder if God has abandoned you, the thing that most people struggle with is most people struggle with looking for assurance in the wrong place. We find our assurance in the Word of God because God's Word never changes, because God never changes. And God's Word is rooted, the promise that you are saved is rooted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who sits at the right hand of God. That sacrifice is worth remembering, isn't it? And that's why we have communion. 
so that we wouldn't so lightly remember what he did for us, but with great intensity remember what he did for us. If you're new to New Hope, our tradition here is just to read a paragraph before you pick up the elements. And the paragraph comes from 1 Corinthians 11. And it's Paul giving the instructions to the church specifically about the way that Jesus wanted us to participate in communion. They're very simple instructions. It sounds like this. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the very next thing he reminded us of is that we need to examine ourselves before we pick up the elements. So he said this, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's a biblical warning not to take things lightly. Maybe you've got something to confess, and you want to do it in the privacy of your seat and the intimacy of this moment, and just talk to the Father. Go ahead and do that. Maybe you just want to thank the Father where you're sitting at. But for whatever reason, you would examine yourself. At that point, after you're ready, come on up to the tables or in the back, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and it'd be my honor to talk you through the remaining portion of that. But this time right now, it's for you. Talk to the Father. That was beautiful. I sense that I stand in an auditorium full of individuals who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're able to physically stand, would you join me in standing? By the way, if you have questions about the things that we've talked about or you want somebody to pray with after the service, uh, Pastor Rich and Pastor or Michael and Jeff will be over in the prayer room after the service. I'll be down front and would be honored to talk with you if you're new. I'd love to meet you. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He held up bread, and he said, this bread will represent my body, which is broken for you. It's in the same meal, he held up a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Father, I thank you for the witness in this room, people who are genuinely not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are willing to witness to the person on their right and on their left that we believe. I pray, God, that you would send us out not only with a blessing of remembering the things that we talked about today, especially when doubts and fears creep in, but the blessing that you place on each person who takes seriously your word that we walk in the power and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we walk, Father, with a, a new skip in our step, with the reality of what you have done for us, and we're claimed by you for all eternity. God, send us out with that memory, especially when the doubts creep in. 
We pray for this. We pray for this in the matchless name of the one who will be coming back again, the one who died for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.